Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin there in verse 5, and we'll bounce around a little bit this morning throughout the entire Revelation, but if you have your Bibles open, uh, we'll use those here today. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, welcome. My name's Mark. I'm one of the ministers, and uh, we're just glad you're here with us today. Let me tell you where we've been so you know where we're going. We're in this uh, series of messages called Keep the Words. We're looking at the Revelation of John. It's found in the, the back end of your Bible, the last book. It's a revelation that was given to John while he was a political prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. He was one of Jesus' inner circle, is one of the 12 disciples, and he wrote five books of our our Bible, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Revelation. And we've been studying it not from uh, reading chapter by chapter and trying to take all the visions and images and project them. What we decided to do was look at the commands that are given to John because John was written to a group of real believers who lived in real cities who were faced with real problems. And if we try to define the book of Revelation outside of that original audience, it's improper and it'll be ineffective. So we look at the Revelation of John and we relate to it based on what they would have taken from it. And we've been looking at what are called imperative verbs, the commands, uh, things like sit down, be quiet, speak up, come in. Those are all imperatives that require a response. And we've been looking at those because there's at least 29 commands in the book of Revelation for the believers to do or not to do. And we're focusing on some very specific. In week one, we looked at the command to keep or guard the words of God. John was told from the very beginning that these words of revelation that God is revealing to John need to be shared with others, so protect them, guard them, and offer them to others. In week two, we looked at the command to come and see. In the revelation, God is revealing, the word is prophecy, but it actually means revelation, not prediction. And in that prophecy, we're told to see what God is revealing, and that's when we've been using the line from uh, Randy Harris at Abilene Christian University who says there's three things to remember, and you probably know these by now, but they're important. Number one, God's team wins. Number two, pick a team. Number three, don't be stupid. That's the revelation. That's where to see. God's going to win. Even when the world seems to be overcoming us, uh, God is going to defeat it all. He is going to set it all back in perfect shape and order. Then in week three, we looked at the uh, command to repent. It's found throughout the Revelation, and it means to change your behavior. Repentance doesn't mean to simply change your mind. It means to give your heart and mind to the things of God and then live accordingly. It's to repent. When God says yes and we say no, we're wrong. When we say yes and God says no, we're wrong. Repentance means to put yourself in submission to God and to live that out. Last week, Dr. Tom Lawson from Ozark Christian College spoke here in a very creative message on worship. And he challenged us that the words that were spoken to John, to hear them and respond to them, is our act of worship. Worship's not just singing a song or raising our hands. Worship is responding to the truth of God in a powerful way. And we were all challenged this week to listen to the word of God, not just read it. Don't parcel it out into little tiny bite-sized pieces, but to hear the entire revelation as it was unveiled before John. And if you did that this week, and I did it, it was wonderful. If you listened to it, it took a little over an hour, but it was amazing when you don't read it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but when you just listen to the whole revelation, John's tail had to be wagging when it was all done. Because at the end of it, what did he learn? God's got it. God's got this whole thing under control. And even when it looks like we're losing, we're going to win. Because the crucifixion looked like a loss. 
and the resurrection made it a victory. And so because of that, there's hope. Today I want to go to the, the next imperative command, and it's the command to be faithful. The command to be faithful. It's a very powerful command. It's found 243 times in the New Testament alone. So it's important. Just by mere repetition, it's important to be faithful. But I want to stop us before we proceed any further and remind you that to be faithful does not mean to be perfect. Faithfulness can often come after failure. It just doesn't mean you have zero failure in your life that makes you faithful. No, faithfulness is what you do when you fail, and it's what you do when you succeed. Faithfulness is a concept that means that you embrace the covenant of God, that you embrace the covenant of God. And what's interesting to me, in a study, this sermon series, on the command verbs, the things we're supposed to do with the revelation of God, found or given to us by John, is that it's... The imperative to be faithful is not found in Revelation, which is, I kind of broke the rule, didn't I? We're going to talk about the commands in Revelation, and this one isn't in there. It is, but it's not as directly found as some of the others. So let me explain. The fa- our command to be faithful is founded on two things. So if you're keeping notes, you might want to add these to your notes. The first command is founded or premised on who Jesus is and what he did. So our command to be faithful is because of Jesus, pure and simple, end of story. Because of how Jesus lived and what Jesus did, we are called to be faithful. And that's where we get our power, and that's where we get our authority. Let's look at some verses, beginning in Revelation 1.5. This revelation is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, remember the context of this. John is writing to seven churches that are under the suppression of Rome, and there's persecution taking place against the church by by Rome. So when you hear this say that the words that are coming to John, this vision of what God is going to do, comes from Jesus Christ, who A, is a faithful witness. He knows God. Second of all, he's been resurrected from the dead, and he will rule all other kings. Now let me ask you, shake your head if you think that makes sense to his audience in the first century. When Rome is ruling them, for John, say, this comes from the one who knows what he's talking about, who overcame death and will overcome kings. That seems like a good word. Be faithful to him. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen. Now, we use the word amen around here, and sometimes it's even facetiously done, or never, but anyway, we'll talk about that another day. But the word amen actually means a testimony to truth. When someone says, Jesus Christ is Lord and King, we don't amen because we're in church. We amen, we say truth. So if you don't like the word amen, you can say truth. You can say, I believe it. You can say, I testify. You know, you can say nothing. Because really, the amount of times you amen isn't relevant. Except if you don't believe it's true, then it becomes very relevant. So he says here, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, these are the words of the truth, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Faithfulness is premised on Jesus. Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. The second principle by which our faithfulness is demanded of us is the word of God. 
It's not only the work that Jesus did and who he is, but it's the word of God. Revelation 21.5. He who was seated on the throne, being Jesus, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. Takes us all the way back to our first command. To keep and guard the words of God because they matter. In Revelation 22.6, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. It's the revelation. God says, I have this, and I need you to trust me. Because of God's faithfulness shown in Jesus and the truth of his word, you and I are to be faithful. Look at Revelation 2.10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful. Revelation 17.14. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. I would be surprised if anybody who came to church on a Sunday morning thought that the command to be faithful was refreshing and new. I think most of us go, yeah, okay, Mark, been coming here a long time. I know I'm supposed to be faithful. But do we understand what it means to be faithful and where that comes from? Because I think most of us equate faithfulness with perfection. I had a bad week. I misspoke to my spouse this morning. I got on my kids. I lost my temper. I wasted a day yesterday. I did something immoral or unethical, and I'm ashamed of myself. I'm not faithful at all because we've confused perfection with faithfulness. Faithfulness is simply this. What do you do when your loving father asks you to do anything? Because faithfulness is a very unique concept based on relationship. Now, let the 13-year-old Mark Christian ask the question that I always ask, and unfortunately, I'm still spiritually about 13 most of the time. What if I don't? (laughs) You know, you have no idea. That's one of my best friends from Mount Pleasant, Michigan, who's no longer welcome here. John, foreigners don't talk in this church. Just be quiet. What if we don't do this? What, what happens? See, because I was raised that I'm saved by grace. So if I'm saved by grace, then all of this extracurricular stuff that's added to me, what if I don't do it? I don't have to, right? Because I'm still saved. And most of us don't get beyond the starting line when it comes to being a believer. Because here's the truth. God's grace and mercy show us how much he loves us. Our faithfulness shows us how much we love him. Do you guys catch that? Grace saves us, but faithfulness is the fuel that keeps us going on the path of salvation. So for those of us who say, I was saved on this date in this year many years ago, I don't deny that's true. But faithfulness does not end when you accept salvation. Faithfulness is just beginning to live the life, to walk the path, to to give to the fact that I am saved by grace. But if I'm saved by grace, why am I judged by works? And some people will argue with me this morning, and I'm not attempting to be right, but my study of scripture doesn't allow me to say that salvation is the end of the game. And if you're living your life to say, well, I'm saved, so what? You've missed the point. 
Salvation is about a relationship with the Father. I ask you again, what do you do when your Father says to you, please do this, or please don't do this? That's when faithfulness is most displayed. In fact, I want to show you something I find quite interesting. And once again, this is an attempt to be right, but it's to open our eyes to what faithfulness can be in our lives. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, so I'd like you to open your Bibles, your apps, whatever you're looking at the scripture. This is a key passage in understanding faithfulness. In Revelation, the 20th chapter, the 12th verse. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. For those of us who say, well, I profess faith in Jesus Christ, so I'm saved, and as long as I get to go to heaven, I don't care about the rest of it. That is non-biblical and dangerous. Because you're saying that I had a one-time relationship with Jesus, now it doesn't matter how I treat him the rest of my days. That's dangerous, that's false teaching, and that's what Satan wants every one of us to buy into. See, in Revelation 3, chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus is quoted as saying, Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Jesus has an expectation that salvation begins our life and faithfulness fuels it. Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I can't quite explain this, I, I mean, because I don't completely understand it, because there's not a lot about what's going to take place in heaven, but there is intimation in Corinthians and in Revelation that the work we do here plays into our future in heaven. And that's not a threat, that's good news. That the sacrifices you make here will be a part of the foundation on which God builds the new heavens and the new earth. What a good God we have, amen? I mean, oh, let me ask. What a good God we have. True? True. All right, there we are. You see, Scripture is clear. We are not saved by works. We are saved for works. And those works are a faithfulness, a response. Salvation is the beginning of the journey. Grace and mercy are the way that God reveals his love for us. And my faithfulness is the way I reveal my love for him. And that's so biblical. It's so clear. You see, biologically, I became a father in 1993 when Heather delivered our first child. And in November of 1993, when Alex came into our world, I could now say to the entire world, I'm a dad. But every day since that child's birth to this day, I prove whether or not I'm a good dad or a bad dad. Are you with me? Shake your head. So whether I'm biologically a dad, please don't profess your Christianity by saying, I am a believer in Jesus because of a date a long time ago. It's every day that I live out whether I am faithful to the one who loves me. And I believe faithfulness is demonstrated when you have a loving relationship with God. Because if you don't love God and understand his love for you, you will not be faithful. Remember, you can even be faithful after failure. How do you respond when you've sinned? It's not perfection, but how do I respond when I sin? I repent, I confess, and I return back to the love of my God. And within this, it's not perfection, but it's the choice to live. 
You see, and when Braden came in, again, I became a dad. But at the end of my life, I don't want to just be a biological father. I want to be a spiritual father. I want to be a good dad. I want to be someone they know believes in them, loves them, will discipline, will hold them to the best of standards. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus asked his father to do for him, and he invested everything in fulfilling that. So let's not just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Let's say, I'm faithful to Jesus. That's what a follower is. And that's the hope of this command, to call us to a better life. Now, I want to illustrate this. Every week, we've been pulling an example of what this looks like in the real world, if you will, from someone in Scripture. Today, I want to use a very familiar and common passage. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. But I'd like to explain to you how how Abraham's a little more like you and I than maybe we think. And I don't want us to live just in Abraham's world and see this as, well, he's a superhero of the faith, as we heard about this morning in the Scriptures read. I want us to understand that he was a man who was faithful even after failure. And because of those failures, his faith grew as he trusted and loved God more. Now, if you don't know his story, you can begin reading in Genesis 12 and read all the way through, I think, chapters 23 or 24. So if you've never read this story, I encourage you to to take some time this week and sit down in one big reading, read the story of Abraham's life. You'll see success and failure, but you'll always see faith and how he responded. So his father passes away. He's one of three boys. His father passes away, and when that happens, the land that his father owned is given to Abraham as part of his inheritance. His flocks, his herds, his finances, and his land. And at that moment, when he should have the most security with all of his finances and estate in place, God asks him to become insecure. See, in chapter 12, God says, I want you to leave your land and go someplace. In chapter 15, he says, I'm going to bring you to a land, and I'm going to allow you to to be there. And then he says in chapter 15, and I'm going to give you a son. At this time, biologically, Abraham and and Sarah could not produce a child. And so God says, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a child. And then in chapter 22, he says, I want you to give that child back. It's found there in Genesis 22 too. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now I want to pull back for a little bit before we get all caught up in this whole story of this great epic man named Abraham. And I, I want to show you what God asked of Abraham, and I want to see if you can relate to it. Here's what he did. He said, I want you to go. And Abraham said, where? And God said, just go, trust me. And then he said to him, I'm going to take you to a special place. And they had been living in tents for years. And Abraham said, when? And God said, just wander until I get you there. Trust me. And then he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, how? And God says, listen, just wait and trust me. And then he says, I want you to give me your son. Sacrifice him to me. And Abraham said, why? And God said, just obey. Trust me. Now, here's the question I have for you. Have you ever had that experience with God? Follow me. Where? Just follow me. When are we going to get there, God? Don't worry. We'll get there. What are we going to do when we get there, God? Don't worry. I'll show you. Give me your most important thing. Why? Just trust me. Remember what I said about faithfulness earlier? Faithfulness is always founded on whether or not you believe that you can trust the one who's asking you for it. Which is why many of us, including myself, struggle with faithfulness because we forget the God who's asking of us these hard things to do. And Abraham was called a man of faith, 
Because when God asked him to trust, he chose to. James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, records these words in James 2. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That word reckoned is an accounting term, I'm told, and it means applied to his account, a transfer of value from one thing to another. That when he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Notice the connection again. Our faithfulness is really attributed to whether or not we believe God is good. And we believe God's been good to us. Because if we question whether God's been good, we won't trust him when he says, move, wait, stop, go, come here, go there. You see, if we don't have a God that can cross our will, we don't have a God. If we don't have a God who can ask for the most important thing from us, he's not really our God. Because Abraham had to choose each and every time. Now, it's interesting here, in Genesis 22, two, one more time on the screen, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, let me give you just a little background of the Old Testament if you're, if you're not familiar with this or you may have forgotten. There were several kinds of offerings you could give God. There was one, for instance, called a thank offering. And in the thank offering, you would take an animal or some of your produce and you would give half of it to the priest. You'd offer it to God. You'd give half of it to the priest and you'd take the remaining half and have a celebration. So if you gave God a turkey, half the turkey went to God. The other turkey you roasted at home, you had a nice meal and you thanked God for it. That didn't require much of you because you received benefit from the thank offering. Then there were the burnt offerings where you gave everything to God and got nothing in return. And all you got in return was the need to trust God more. Now, do you remember? What kind of offering did God ask Abraham to give when it came to Isaac? A burnt offering. To give away the thing that mattered to him most. In fact, he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. I want to point out two things that I think are significant. The first is this. God said these words to Abraham. Give your son your only son. There's a problem, though. Abraham has two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, do we think that God is saying Ishmael doesn't count? I don't think God's saying Ishmael doesn't count. I think God's pointing out to Abraham that in Abraham's heart, Ishmael doesn't count. So the first thing he points out is, give me your only son. He had two. And then he says, give me your only son whom you love. And that's the point of emphasis. He's saying to Abraham, you love Isaac more than you love me. So I'm going to ask you, if you truly love me and trust me, give Isaac to me completely to see how much we will be found faithful. Now, before we get overwhelmed by that, can't we thank God today that Jesus was willing to do exactly what Abraham was asked to do? So once again, God doesn't ask of us anything he's not willing to do. So he said, give him completely to me. You see, the real enemy of our faithfulness to God in our life may not just be our sin. Sometimes the real enemy of having a faithful relationship with God may be the most important things to us. Like our kids, our careers, our education, our money, our fame. In this case, it was Isaac. And God's not ashamed to ask for us to give the most important things to him. So how did Abraham do this? The Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. Abraham reasoned 
that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did. He reasoned. I do tire of non-Christians making fun of believers because they think we're just a bunch of blind monkeys just jumping from tree to tree hoping we find God. But what I love about Scripture is you can't walk by faith without thinking it through. It requires reasoning. It requires thought. Now, some of us are too mental with God. And we, if God doesn't explain it to us, then we write him off. No, faith requires that when we know who we're talking about, we can trust him. And we talked about parental relationships a few weeks ago, how for many of us, because we were blessed to have a good relationship with our parents, even at this age, if our parents called and asked us for anything, we would do it because we love them. Faithfulness is premised on the same thing. And it says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. You see, Christian obedience is never thoughtless. Christian obedience requires discovery of who God is through his word and through the Holy Spirit and being led to experience God in our everyday lives. It's not a blind leap into the darkness. It's a leap into the arms of a loving father. So we're not faithful when we don't know who God is. But when we know who God is, it's jump away, right? To jump into his arms, to run to him, to be the son that realizes when he comes to his senses in Luke 15, I can go home. It's better to be a servant in my father's house than to live on my own alone. So we go home. You see, I used to say this, and I repent of it, that Abraham knew God would raise Isaac from the dead, but that's not what the scriptures say. It says that Abraham reasoned that God could. Once again, faith is founded on who God is, not what I'm capable of. It's on who God is, not how comfortable he makes me. It's on realizing that the God who has done all this for me only asks that I trust him. And so I choose to. You see, if you look at who God is and what he's done for you in your past, obedience is a reasonable response to God's request. I want to say that again. If you know who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ, obedience to the most seemingly ridiculous request is reasonable when we take ourselves out of the equation and we know who God is. Romans 4.20. Abraham never doubted. He praised God for this blessing even before it happened. He was completely sure that God was able to do anything he promised. Faithfulness is not based on my perfection. It's based on God's faithfulness. You see, he knew. He knew who God was and he chose to believe it. So as we've done every week in this series, what does this command look like in your and my life? How do we live this out? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk not by sight, but by faith. Notice that. We shouldn't be surprised that faithfulness is an expectation. See, in in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. J.B. Phillips' translation of this says the Greek word lean means to fall your complete weight on God. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay your entire life not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will straighten your path. Faithfulness. Who is the one making the request? Now, John would write these words in 1 John chapter 2, same author of the Revelation. John would say, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know God, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So let me ask this group the question. What did Jesus do when God asked him to do a hard thing? He obeyed. And one of the things we celebrate about our Lord is when times got tough, he leaned heavier into God. Instead of falling away from him, he fell into him. So perfection is not our goal, but honesty, sincerity, and worship is. So when God calls us and he says, this is not the way to live your life, we can argue all we want or we can reason that the God asking us to obey is the God of truth, the God who has loved us, the God who has honored us and held us. Because to say we know who God is, but we don't trust him enough to obey him, John says, you don't know who God is. You know, biologically, you were given new birth, but you've never fueled the new life to walk the new path. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, John writes these words. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saved ones who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. My intention this morning in no way is to put more pressure on you to be perfect, to never screw up, to never lose your temper or lose your your patience or any of those issues. Because you could try all you want to do that. You're going to be you, and you're going to end up where you are. But I am telling you today that the gift of salvation is to give us the power to be faithful, not to go back to the old life continuing to live in sin. We need to stop eating out of the dumpster and start sitting at the Father's table. We need to to say, listen, I realize my obedience is not to prove I'm saved. My obedience is to keep my salvation running to the glory of God, to live out this new life, to walk by power. And there are some here today, some who have been believers in the past and have walked away from their faith, and some who have never professed faith in Jesus today. This isn't an altar call. This is the challenge of God's word. He is worth obeying because he's good. He is worth obeying because he's right. And he's worth obeying because he'll never lie to you, deceive you, or use you. We are saved to work to the glory of the Father because that's how we're built, that's what makes us happiest, and it is the fuel of faithfulness for the rest of our lives. So I'll ask you this morning, can you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and let his, oh, I love this, let his perfection replace your imperfection and to let his faithfulness teach us how to be faithful. Because that's what it means to be a believer. And all it means is you give up all you are to become all he's ever wanted you to be. And in that, you'll find out why you're here. And you'll begin to experience the new life before you ever die. So there's a song we're about to sing here as a church. It's, in fact, the next two songs are all about what he's offering you and me. Let us be faithful. Let us fight the good fight. Let us run the race. Let us finish the contest because Jesus Christ is worth it. Let's stand together.